As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Why have we not seen more fallout, especially in such a jittery market? Peter Shear has been writing a lot about that. Uh, Head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. And we're so glad you're actually in studio with us, which is fabulous. It is wonderful to have you on this pre-Thanksgiving week. Peter, how much are you seeing uh, some sort of, I don't know, whales? And how much are you seeing something where it's a realistic pricing action of institutions having fully adopted uh, a crypto asset, even if it does lose favor to some degree? I think we have one more big leg down in crypto. I think we're going to see some selling off in Bitcoin. I think one of the things that supported it recently are the fact that there are a lot of whales who have invested interest in keeping it higher. And there's all this talk about Bitcoin maximalists, right? So there is a theory that, okay, FTT, the tokens, that was where a lot of the trouble was. Maybe Bitcoin's the quote unquote safe part of crypto. I think that narrative is going to get hurt a little bit. Um, and all the stuff that's been going on with the grayscale trust. So GBTC has been feeding into that a little bit. So people who I believe have been selling that to buy Bitcoin. I think that's going to turn out to be a mistake as well. Why isn't this a broader market story? How can this be so contained given that this story really grew up in the era of uh, free money? So I think earlier this year, it's a great question, but I think earlier this year, (laughs) they were kind of tied together because you had a lot of people who were invested in crypto. They were invested in disruptive stocks. They all were doing it on margin. So every time one sneezed, it would you know drag down everything else. That got shaken out a little bit. So we're <clears throat> better off right now. I think the next leg of this is going to be, wow, what happens to the economy? You start looking at the amount of money that was being spent by even FTX on advertising, crypto as a whole. Right? I, I think this is going to feed into the economy. I think the wealth effect is real, right? This time we've lost $3 trillion dollars down to just under a trillion, right? There's been huge wealth effects. I think this is going to bleed into the economy. Generally, that's going to be bad. I think it's going to turn out to be good for energy usage, though. Peter, thanks so much for coming in. You have an August firm, hugely conservative at Academy of Securities, of former admirals and and the like as well. They hang on every bit of when Cheer publishes on rates, risk, and Taylor Swift. How'd that sell? (laughs) You know, we got to do some clickbait too, even in our, our okay. business. <laughs> well, why do you sell Bitcoin to a conservative shop like Academy? These people are going to say it's unregulated. It can't be regulated. It's foreign. How do you sell Bitcoin as a legit thing to a bunch of conservative people at Academy? So fortunately, I've been fairly negative on it, but I think we're having these conversations. Where do we step in? When does it get interesting for our firm to explore it? It's really going to come down to regulation. 
do the regulators come out and create an environment that you can feel comfortable with, right? And right now, it's just not there. One of my big takeaways has been for the last year, talk something as simple as where's something domiciled and where are exactly. there? Exactly. Okay, you and, right, you and I are on the same page <laughs> on this. Alibaba's hanging out at the Cayman Islands uh, trying to play by a different uh, rule book. I'm going to defend Gary Gensler here right now. What does he regulate? Where's the domicile? I think that's really the key issue, right? You've got to have some sort of domicile here. And the big question I think a lot of people are talking about, even whether it's these grayscale trusts, is where is the Bitcoin? So we talk about spot ETFs, blah, 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 right? It's like, how do you confirm on a daily basis that what you think you hold in the crypto world is legitimately there without maybe publishing it and exposing yourself to theft or hacking? So I think that's really the key is most other assets, you understand whether you own it, whether it's an equity, whether it's gold, you can pretty easily prove it. That's been the hard part with crypto. I think that's what's going to have to get to the heart of regulation is how do we verify this? How do we get comfortable that we are auditing something and regulating something that's actually there? Neil Kashkari has been talking about how this is just a Ponzi scheme. He doesn't really uh, think that there's any there there here. And he's been t very vocal about that on Twitter and in lectures. How much is the banking industry leveraged to the Bitcoin and, and, and frankly, to the crypto story, not necessarily by borrowing money to invest in crypto, but in building up teams of people designed to trade it, designed to invest in. I don't think the banks have really put that much effort into it. I think they're building out, but it's a small part of their business. The other part of this, I do think people made a mistake is every time some <clears throat> bank announced they were doing something on crypto, everyone read, oh, this is great. They're adopting it. They're adopting it. No, no. Banks are very smart, right? If there's a bid offer to be made, if there's some trading revenue to be made, they're going to get involved. That's not a commitment to it. So I think banks can pull back if this doesn't work out. And to me, Bitcoin is always about adoption, the rate of adoption. When you want to get bullish on it, you see adoption coming up. I just don't see it going up anytime soon. In fact, I see it dropping as more and more people question why they want to be in this space. What's your call for 2023? Let's get out front of your uh, year ahead report. Uh, you get well, Taylor Swift into it? I'm <laughs> uh, not sure about that. I think crypto going down will be sub 10,000 on Bitcoin. You're I, calling sub 10,000 on Bitcoin? Definitely. I think that actually potentially happens even this year. I like rates, though. I think yields are actually probably the easiest trade. I want to be long yields right now. I think treasuries are going to rally. I think the economy is rolling over. The data is rolling over. And as hawkish as the Fed wants to talk, the markets are starting not to listen to it. So I love owning bonds here. Well, but we were talking to Carl Weinberg earlier, and he says quantitative tightening. What about quantitative? Tightening. So to me, quantitative tightening is a little bit the opposite of quantitative easing. In fact, almost exact opposite. And I find quantitative easing easier to explain. It's like if you have these Newton cradle, right, where you drop this one ball and stuff shoots out at the end. So that's what happened. It shoots out and where it really exposes itself at the riskiest end of the spectrum, right? So every single person winds up having to make a choice. I have to either buy longer duration assets, riskier assets, less liquid assets. And it really comes out at the far end. That's why I think crypto did so well, all these disruptive stocks. So when it comes back in, it's not going to express itself in yields. It's going to be in the riskiest assets. So I think stocks can still lag from here. And it's not going to express itself regardless of what we're doing on the quantitative tightening in the bond market. Bonds price up, yield down, stocks don't play. No, I think not. I think maybe we get a little surge in stocks um, after we get through this crypto debacle where people get back to comfortable, oh, lower yields is good for stocks. Then I think the reality is going to be, no, no, yields are going lower because the economy has rolled over. We've done too much. We have these right. problems. And quantitative tightening, I think, is more impactful on equities and yeah. risk assets than bonds. I mean, Evermore came out, Taylor Swift with Jack Antonoff and The National. I mean, what they did, Peter, during the pandemic, she just said, I'm not, I'm not laying low for the pandemic. And they just created and created and created. Look at the payoff. 
No, it's been phenomenal. I think one question that's been coming up directly to our business is, what does this do for M&A activity, right? We've already had DC that doesn't like M&A activity. And now all of a sudden you've got Live Nation, these companies, you know, getting reported on. I, I think it's going to be interesting. And I think that's going to be a tail- headwind for uh, M&A next year. Were you Don't really be- prepared to talk about Taylor Swift? Is that really what we're doing here? Yeah. I wasn't that prepared, but I figured, you know, I think Tom, the, you got to be ready for anything. I think the influence of the That's national true. on what she did here acoustically was stunning. Well, I mean, I mean, Antonov's my hero, mm-hmm. but, you know. I'm not an expert in Taylor Swift. I will say that the controversy over uh, some of the ticket sales is going to be something that... Her song, Illicit Affairs, moment I heard it, boom. Are you a, Timeless. Are you a Taylor Swift fan? No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Peter Cheer, thank you so much with Academy uh, Securities. Right now, and if you're taking notes on the equity market, get out the pad, get out the paper, because Katie Kaminsky, chief research strategist at Alpha Simplex, is a turtle. She is a turtle trader from way back, which is trend matters. Uh, uh, Katie, everybody would kill for your performance this year, still up 40%. What is the trend forward or are trends breaking now? Yeah, Tom, it's been a phenomenal year for trend and a year where things are very uncertain. Um, What we have noticed, though, is that we're going through an inflection point right now. Like we saw earlier this summer, we're starting to see that shorter term signals and longer term signals are kind of at odds. Um, And so I think we, just like the rest of the market, are looking for a pivot to the next big trend. Uh, So far, um, you're looking at a day like today, the dollar is coming back a little bit. That may not be over. Um, And of course, short bond signals are still there in the data. Well, Katie, can you elaborate on that? This sort of pivot point that you see in terms of short term and longer term signals. What is that pivoting us to? Right. We've come from an era where bonds have been all over the place, but we saw a rally recently. We saw stocks being both stocks and bonds rallying. What's the new pivot? What's that new reality? Well, the thing is, we've really, the challenge has been that we've had a mixed signal. So there's no clear signal net at this point. And that's why I say we're definitely at an inflection point. But if I had to look a little closer at what has changed the most, optimism has come into signals at a level that is consistent with what we've seen recently. So you've seen more positive signals in equities, especially around the CPI print. You're also seeing a little bit more um, reversion out of the dollar trade but that's still there. So that's why I kind of said it's a balance between what do we see shorter term and longer term. And the longer term signals are still definitely saying that there's some things to worry about ahead, especially the curve, uh, the yield curve being inverted recently. Katie, you've nailed it with bonds in particular. You went short bonds, which has been the widow maker for so many years. And this was one of the areas where you absolutely knocked it out of the park with nearly 40% returns so far this year. How much do you buy this conviction that we're feeling in Wall Street that that's going to be the biggest area of outperformance by 10 year, by 30 year treasuries, and you're going to just do really well next year? So we did some research this year on bonds. It was called the short of shorting bonds. And one of the things that we need to think about if we're moving into a much more uh, focused on rising rates and higher rates environment is that bonds are not going to behave under inflationary pressures like they did in the past. And this year was just the first data point to show us that that's the case. And I think what has been the most fascinating to me is how we avoid thinking about long bias. And so many of us are so dependent on being long bonds 
we forgot what it's like to actually think about how do you deal with actually shorting bonds and how do you deal with bonds and valuation versus inflation? And I think that is going to be the key question for all investors right. in the next uh, few years. What's great about trend following folks, and this is rumored folks, Liverpool may be up for sale. John Henry, owner of the Red Sox, arch turtle trader. Rumor has it Henry may sell Liverpool to Kaminsky. We'll have to see on that as well. We get a lot of emails, Katie, when you're, when you're on with us. Are moving averages helpful to trend followers? Yes. I mean, I think the way we think about it, moving averages give you one way to measure the strength of a trend. These days, we use a wide range of different methods. Some of it is based on machine learning. Some of it is based on different types of breakout signals. But the point is, in environments where the world is very uncertain, you have to turn to what the market is doing as opposed to what it should do. Because frankly, few people actually know what it should do these days because it's so volatile and unclear what the future is actually going to hold under this inflationary environment. Katie, thank you so much. Katie Kaminsky, arguably the number one performance of surveillance guests this year at Alpha Simplex. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, we're going to turn to some of the uh, focus on the year ahead. One of the biggest consensus calls, go long bonds. David Riley, Chief Investment Strategist at Blue Bay Asset Management here to weigh in. Is this your number one as well? 10-year, 30-year, the longer the better. Um, yeah, I do think it's going to be a year when duration um, actually you know, pays off and it will make sense to be long duration. I'm actually more inclined to go in terms of the uh, Treasury curve towards the five-year um, point. And, and that's because um, I do think that it's more likely than not that the US economy goes into um, recession. I think we'll probably therefore get some bulls deepening in the um, curve. Uh, normally, you'd express that at the, at the very short end, but we don't really know how far and how fast inflation will fall. And therefore, we don't really know at what point does the Fed start considering um, rate cuts? I think the five-year is probably quite a good sort of sweet uh, spot. And with that, I'd also be uh, buying some high-grade uh, credit at this uh, level as well. See, Tom, he likes the five-year auction. That's what he was just saying right there. It's, He's it's saying good. he likes that's the five-year. That's the reason we book him is for auction love with <laughs> exactly. Lisa Bramowitz. Well, thank you, David. I do wonder, though, at what point you're looking at a return to the old normal, right? At this idea that we're going back to an inflation that's sub 2% or even 2% and other people pushing back. Where do you say to them, look, we're not going to have a high inflation regime for a very long time and bonds will be able to reassert themselves in a way that we're used to? 
Well, because I do think that we are at or very close to the peak in inflation. And, you know, I think it's right to highlight just how much uncertainty we do have in terms of how far and how fast um, inflation falls. And that's obviously very critical for the Fed and other central banks and therefore for the outlook for um, the bond market. But I don't see a sort of self-fulfilling or self-perpetuating um, mm. wage price spiral. And if you think we're going into recession, as I think we are going into not only a European, but also US and global recession, um, that's very negative in all sorts of ways. And, and, and sadly, right. people are going to be losing their jobs on the back of that. But we know from experience, that does bring inflation down. Inflation is going to be coming down. It's just about right. the pace and the magnitude of that through next year. David, uh, tell me about the value of cash here. If we're quote unquote going into a recession, is cash good or is cash trash? Um, I do think that as we go into um, recession, I think what is going to be of particular value is to have liquidity uh, within portfolios. Now, some of that's going to come from having holdings of um, uh, cash, but I also think it means a bias towards um, uh, credit, uh, core fixed income, which is now giving you a yield. I mean, one of the key differences, there's a lot of differences, but one of the key differences going into 2023 compared to when we went into um, 2022, right. when we went into this year, is that we're actually starting with much higher levels of uh, yield. And that's giving you a an income cushion, uh, which you otherwise wouldn't, you know, didn't have right. at the start of um, 2022. So you yeah, have some liquidity, have some cash, I think a bias towards the more liquid securities. But I don't think it's an environment, I think there are opportunities out there for you to deploy cash. I wouldn't be holding too much cash. Right. Uh, David, we need you to get back to England, Iran. I know that's what you're really focused on here. We thank you for uh, coming on. We've got people outside. There's a ticketing snafu at the stadium. iPlayer is down worldwide. But also in minute three with McGuire advancing, David, somebody talks about a stone bonker of a penalty. Can, I mean, Pharaoh's not here, David. Save us. What does stone bonker mean? Um, you've caught me out there, Tom. I'm not sure what Stonebonko actually means, but it sounds like it's a nailed-on um, penalty that has been conceded. And, and by the Thank way you, you described it, um, it sounds like it may have been conceded by England, which would rather be in keeping with uh, the start that England often make to World Cup tournaments, a lot of a build-up and, and then some uh, disappointment when the game gets underway. Uh, let's hope I'm wrong and let's hope it's different this time around. David Riley with piercing analysis there in for John Farrell as well. <laughs> David Riley, Blue Bay Asset Magic. Right now, we're going to stop the show. And we made a decision here at least 15 years ago to say, yes, we do economics, finance, and investment. But far more, we do international relations, not knowing the world would be turned upside down, as we have seen in the recent decades. Providing leadership worldwide on that has been Richard Haas. He's president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Full disclosure, I'm a member. Well, I pay my dues. I think I'm behind on my dues, Richard Haas, but we'll we'll. Go there another time. He is yeah, the Bitcoin payment was really yeah, the Bitcoin worked out. Richard Haas is retiring, pulling away from truly his Council on Foreign Relations. Richard Haas, thank you so much for joining us. So much to talk about today. Where must the Council on Foreign Relations go to lead as fractious international diplomacy? 
Well, Tom, first of all, I'm not retiring from anything. I'm departing the council after 20 years, but I'm going to stay active in the uh, public conversation, both about this country's role in the world as well as about the future of American uh, democracy. But I think it's healthy for institutions, despite what's going on right. at Disney. I think it's kind of healthy for institutions every now and then to have a change in uh in leadership, I think for the council, it's simply to continue to be a resource on a wide range of challenges, whether it's the revival of geopolitics or global issues. We, you know, we're just finishing up a uh, uh, the COP27 meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh, and quite honestly, right. I think it's uh, almost a complete and utter, uh, utter failure. And I also think you know, increasingly we need to look at the relationship between America internally and America externally. And whether we're ever going to be positioned to again lead the world, because this world is not going to organize itself to meet the challenges it faces without a, an involved uh, and effective United States. So I think the, the inbox in this field is as full as it's right. ever been. I, I agree with that strongly. And folks, a brief here, 240 pages, is Richard Haas. The bill of obligations is he and we go in search of the will of America to move forward. Richard Haas, the new administration the new Congress, the new presidency two years out, do they have the will to find their bill of obligations? I don't see a lot of it, Tom. I'll be honest. Uh, you know, I don't think we're off to a great start. Uh, the new Republican House of Representatives seems much more interested in politics than policy and in investigations than legislation. Uh, I think for the next two years, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for the Biden administration to get legislation passed really about anything. I think you're going to see, therefore, uh, an emphasis on foreign policy, where presidents traditionally have more discretion than they do on things domestic, and probably a greater emphasis on, on, on regulation, on executive action, again, to essentially find ways to do things without requiring uh, Congress to, to, to join. In this fractious global order, how confident are you that the U.S. will remain close to Europe, at least as close to Europe as they have traditionally based on some of the recent fa uh, fissures, not only with respect to exactly how to deal with the energy crisis, but also with tech investments and some of the, uh, the, the, the bills that Congress has passed so far that really focus on the U.S.? It's a good question, Lisa. I think it's a mixed record. On one hand, if this administration, the Biden administration, stands for anything, and it's an, it's an alliance-first foreign policy, and I think the entire management of the Ukraine crisis, the Russian crisis, has been, has been pretty good. You also see a growth in transatlantic trade, whether it be because of, of energy or a de-emphasis on trading with adversaries or re-emphasis on trading with, with, uh, with friends. Where I'm worried about over the long term is not so much Russia as it is China. And I think there could be a growing split between what you might call American economic pressure on China, almost economic warfare, and Europe led by Germany looking to China in many ways to compensate for the loss of uh, economic ties with, with Russia. And if there were to ever be a crisis over Taiwan, this divergence across the Atlantic, one makes a crisis more likely because China may not fear uh, sanctions. Or if there were a, a crisis and the United States wanted to introduce sanctions, I could imagine a big transatlantic split. This is really important, especially as German Chancellor Olaf Scholz just went to China with a bunch of executives of big uh, industrial companies. How much do you give credence then to the softening in tone that we've heard, at least recently, with the U.S. and China and Tony Blinken heading over there early next year? Look, I think it's good. Uh, I'm an old-fashioned diplomat, so I actually happen to believe in diplomacy. I think that's progress. I thought the meeting in Bali 
was a, a useful exchange. I think it's useful to have follow-up, but let's not kid ourselves. These countries are on very different uh, pages. The question is whether they can set up some rules of the road about how to limit their differences over Taiwan so it doesn't lead to conflict. But I don't see any sign, for example, that China is lending a hand to deal with mm -hmm. North Korea, which is busy building up nuclear weapons and shooting off uh, missiles. I don't see that China's helping with Iran. We can go around the world. So geopolitically, the two countries are not on the same page. China's still not helping with, with, with climate much. So uh, again, to me, the real question with the United States and China with these talks is whether they can avoid negatives more than achieve positives. Uh, Richard Haas, uh, I grew up with part of the house being a middle 20th century isolationist, what was called a Chicago Tribune Midwest isolationism, something I'm sure you saw west of Oberlin, Ohio. And when I look at where we are today, Richard Haas, we have a new isolationism. It's always there, but this time it's different. Color the character of America's new isolationism. Right. We're seeing it, Tom, and it doesn't respect party lines. We're seeing it in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Uh, you see in the Republican Party a kind of flirtation with Russia, this talk about conditioning or limiting aid to Ukraine. On the progressive side of the Democratic Party, again, an impatience over money spent for foreign policy or national security abroad, wanting to see more at home. What's missing on both sides of the aisle is an appreciation of two things. One is that money spent on foreign policy is good for us here at home. We are not going to do well in a world that unravels, uh, to use my favorite word, in a world in, in, in disarray. Secondly, what ails us at home, for the most part, is not a lack of resources being spent. You look at how much we're spending domestically. That's not the problem. It's how we spend money is the issue, much more than how, how much we spend. Plus, increasingly, as you know better than anybody, uh, what's crowding out a lot of useful forms of domestic spending is not national security. It's servicing our debt. And that's something mm -hmm. if, if people on the left and the right wanted to free up money to devote to domestic causes, they could focus very much uh, on the size of America's debt. Richard Haas, thank you so much. With the Council and his Council on Foreign Relations, the new book, The Bill of Obligations, is the will out there to move forward uh, into the next decade. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.